Welcome back to the H.P. Lovecraft Book Club. Uh, this podcast is uh, kind of a, a add-on to my main series, American Writers, 100 Pages at a Time, is exploring the works of H.P. Lovecraft one at a time. And this episode, we'll be looking at The Outsider. Uh, we're currently going through the stories Lovecraft wrote in the early 1920s. And there's a whole bunch of them, uh, 27 or so, written between 1920 and 1924. Which, uh, just in terms of titles, is about half of the total stories he published under his name, not including the revisions. By the way, about the revisions, um, I have have I was originally going to do a, a series at the end of this podcast, you know, maybe a, a year later or whenever I got to it, with the revisions. And I, I think I'm going to change that. I think I'm going to look at his revisions as he wrote them, but I'm still going to do them at the end. So I'm going to do the stuff he published under his name, then I'm going to look at the revisions. One reason I changed my mind on this is because the Klinger Anthology includes Under the Pyramids uh, here. And that that was pretty much 100% written by Lovecraft, but it was under the name Harry Houdini. Um, it was something he wrote for pay. Um, and it's it's kind of a famous story. It kind of disrupted his, his honeymoon, uh, Lovecraft's honeymoon with Sonia Green. So... Um, just because it's in here, I thought, well, why not look at that story too? But then why not look at the other revisions, was I thinking. So so I think uh, there's still one revision from 1919. That'll be kind of, I'll do that one and then I'll look at the other ones. So you're going to get my thoughts on the revisions. As I do them, I think that makes sense because if I am trying to chronologically look at the themes that Lovecraft's exploring, it's maybe best to, to throw those in, um, but kind of set them apart a little bit just to acknowledge that you know, he, he was working with other authors at the time. Maybe not all the ideas are his. It's not always clear how much of it is, is his. And, you know, sometimes it's mostly Lovecraft. Sometimes it's just a lot Lovecraft. Um, but anyways, um, today, The Outsider. So The Outsider is actually one of the first Lovecraft stories I read as an, you know, as an adult. I was exposed a little bit as like a teenager and I didn't really come back to Lovecraft seriously till I got the Library of America anthology. And um, I was subscribing at the time to the Library of America, and I, I thought, wow, Lovecraft. I, I knew him kind of from pop culture. I knew him, you know, kind of just, you know, in... I knew of him. I didn't really study him very carefully, though. And I started reading his stories after I bought the volume. And I just want to say that The, the Outsider is the very first story in that anthology. Like, Dagon's not in it. None of the other stories we looked at up to this point are there. It's chronological, but it outsiders first. And there's a few other or what we call early stories. I feel weird calling early when we've been like doing this for so long. You know, we're, you know, I think this is the 20-some story we've we've talked about, and we it's, we can't really still talk about early Lovecraft. But the the anthology also includes uh, the music of Eric Zahn, the lurking fear, rats in the wall, the shunned house, the horror at Red Hook, cool air, Pickman's model. And then it gets to like the classics, everything. Like, I think this is the statement of Randolph Carter in there too. Maybe the statement of Randolph Carter is the first, and this is the second. Uh, maybe, maybe. Um, but anyways, it's one of the first stories by Lovecraft I I read, and and it's it's a common one that people do come across. It's uh, fairly popular. It's often antho anthologized. Here's what Klinger says about it in his introduction. The Outsider is perhaps the single most analyzed story of any of Lovecraft's considerable output. It has been considered from a biographical, a psychoanalytic, anti-religious polemic, an exercise in philosophy, a criticism of progress, 
a depiction of the homosexual panic. I haven't talked at all about Lovecraft sexuality because it doesn't really interest me. I don't think it's, there's not much to say about it. Some people do think there's a lot to say about it, though. Um, but I don't know. Like, you know, you really can't talk about, about race. That's what I've been trying to get at in this podcast, at least uh, in the main, to talk about racial politics. Uh, unless you want to put it there, right? The story's a bit of a blank slate. You know, the the, the character, the narrator, kind of comes out of nowhere. He doesn't really have a history. He doesn't have a past. You know, and he doesn't even know who he is. He doesn't know what he looks like. You know, he just kind of comes into this community, walks into a party and freaks everyone out. He looks in a mirror, sees he's a monster, and then... You know, that's it. And then he has to dwell on him being, you know, he's the outsider. Now, you can just kind of throw on that anything you want, right? Any Anyone who is an outsider, whether it's because they're sexually um, outside the mainstream, they're a racial other, they're an immigrant, they're H.P. Lovecraft, if you want to do it the personal psychological point of view. Whichever way you want to go at it. Um, you can kind of throw it on there. The story is, is a bit of a blank slate, and I think that's what kind of makes it, you know, not not as fun as some of the others, I guess. I, I'm not as excited to talk about The Outsider as maybe some other people are uh, to talk about this story. It doesn't really... I, I mean, I don't, I, don't, I don't sit around thinking about this story that much, right? It's actually surprising me to hear it being said it's the most analyzed story. I think there's so much more interesting stuff in a lot of his other tales. Um, and even Lovecraft himself apparently thought this was an imitation of Poe, and that, that's sort of how I thought about it when I read it. It's, it was very... Um, you know, it had that kind of unity of effect approach that Poe was after. Everything boils down to that one moment, that one kind of gasp moment at the at the very end, right? Every little point, everything leads to that. Every little detail leads to that that final effect, and it's done very very well. Um, but you know, it's not really a, a Lovecraftian story. It's not even about he's just at this time in his career Im imitating Poe. I've talked about how a lot of the themes that really are, I think, core to why Lovecraft is so popular and why he's so important a writer, Whereas, were there as early as stories like Juan Romero, or Dagon for that matter, right? So this story is a bit uh, difficult to talk about, perhaps, but I'll, I'll make my attempt, and I'll... Um, and I just want to acknowledge it's, it's an important story for many people, because for many people it's their exposure to Lovecraft, right? If you read one story of his in, if you, in like a high school or a college just general like literature course, it's probably be, be this one, right? This is very likely the one you would read. And, um, you know, in that sense, it, it might be many people's only exposure to, to Lovecraft. And for that reason, it's, it's maybe important to, to, to take more seriously than I probably will in this, this particular episode. Just because it, it doesn't really... Um, uh, to be frank, I was a little bit intimidated because I just didn't know that much what to say about it because it did seem you could say anything you want about it because it is so there's this blankness to the story, right? He doesn't have a past, so you give him any past, right? He doesn't have family, so there's nothing to connect to. There's there's not even like a sense of place or history, right? Um, I've tried. I mean, I was looking for that when I was rereading this. Like, is there any kind of evidence of, of, a, of a history here? And there isn't. Um, he's just 
he's just the outsider and he's physically so. So maybe that's why maybe we can talk about race in this 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 story. Um, well, why is he isolated? Is he just dead? I mean, that's probably the most common way of reading this is he's actually just a corpse, like a zombie. And, um, you know, and that's that's as far as it goes. And then in that case as well, you can kind of put whatever you want on it. You know, even the title, The Outsider. It's very generic. You can that can apply to so many people. We all feel like outsiders at various times in our, our life. Maybe that's the appeal of the story. So forgive me for being a little bit obtuse, perhaps, about this story. <clears throat> All right. It was written in the summer of 1921, first published in Weird Tales in 1926. So it took a while to, to find its way into print. So um, the story begins. The story is fairly chronological, not entirely so, but... Um, you know, a lot of these stories from this era, I think that's actually pretty common in, in, in many of his great stories, too, where there's some kind of commentary at the beginning. The narrator gives some overall comment. Um, and here's his in this story. Quote, unhappy is he to whom the memories of childhood bring only fear and sadness. Wretched is he who looks back upon lone hours in vast and dismal chambers with brown hangings and maddening rows of antique books, or upon awed watches in twilight groves of grotesque gigantic in vine-encumbered trees that silently wave twisted branches far aloft. Such a lot the gods gave to me, to me the dazed and disappointed, the barren and broken. And yet I'm straight to content and cling desperately to these seer memories when my mind momentarily threatens to reach beyond to the other. So it's just a childhood, a life, right? If you take this character as dead, right? Um, I'm going to assume you know the, how the story kind of plays out. If you take him as dead, then it's, it's his whole life has been this way, apparently. But he, he seems to be someone who's talking about his, his childhood, but there's a continuation. He, you know, he, he's kind of lost. There's, I mean, he doesn't have a social life. He doesn't have, there's no society around him. So there's no, usually when we think of maturation, we think of childhood, adulthood, there are benchmarks to it. And those are usually defined socially and culturally and through our interactions with others, right? Our graduation. Or the first time we we get laid, the our first kiss. I'm kind of working backwards, aren't I? I should start from the beginning. You know, our our you know our first birthday party, and then you know our, we start school, and then our first bicycle, and you know our graduating grade school, and then our first kiss, and then we get laid, and then we get and then we graduate, and then we go off to college, and then we get married, get a job, whatever, right? The the benchmarks of our life are defined by others, though, by the other people we interact with and how we interact with them and are defined by others. Right. So the only way we can talk about a childhood or an adolescence or a adulthood is through our interrelations with others in our historical and cultural context. And he doesn't have any of that. Right. So his use of childhood here, I think, is is maybe unfortunate because I don't think this character can even talk in terms of childhood or adulthood except outside of the purely biological. Um, all he has is books, um, but he's saying this is really unhappy and lonely, obviously. Um, he's got this contentness, because uh, that's all he knows, I suppose. Um, his happy moments, those seer moments, those moments in which he has contentment, I mean, not really happiness, but contentment, are when the mind momentarily threatens to reach beyond to the other. So that's to break free. So. It is, I think this is a fairly good depiction of just 
of, of loneliness, right? And, and the desire of all of us to have some connection to, to the others, to, to others, to the other, right? And whatever your isolation is, whatever, if it's imposed from the outside by, by social stigma, whether it's, you know, sexual, racial, gendered, whatever, childhood, child, children often feel isolated because society doesn't respect them. Um, if you're a foreigner, whatever it might be, you know, you do still have this longing to, to, to interact and to be part of something larger in the larger society, right? Um, and, and I think that kind of questing is, is a little bit more fulfilling than the questings we usually get in Lovecraft stories because his questers, his investigators, they're always going, in, like, they're going down into the tunnel or the tomb or the cavern or under the sepulcher or some crazy shit like that. And, and the outsider's quest is just to be acknowledged as a person and to have some encounters with someone else. And I, I think that's kind of touching. That's one thing I do like about this story. It's not that I don't, you know, what I said before, it's not that I don't like this story. I just find it weird to talk about in this particular podcast uh, because I've been pushing a handful of themes so aggressively. And maybe I shouldn't do that. Maybe I'm, I'm kind of um, funneling Lovecraft a little too, bit too much, but that's just really where my interests are, are sort of lying. Um, but, you know, I think this kind of quest is, is attractive and appealing, and, and it's, it, I think it's something we all can kind of relate to, whatever our situation. And that's why I think it's so easily interpreted in many, many different ways. Um, so then we get his background, uh, being born in this castle, uh, this very, very old castle, um, right? If you want to, you know, imagine him being a corpse, then he was like maybe in the Middle Ages when he was alive, and it, the world's kind of moved on to like the early modern, I think, based on the depictions we get later, you know. But like, like what I said before, though, there's almost no grounding in any kind of historical moment, except there are books, so... You have to have books. So it's not like it's not scrolls. Um, and I guess we got a castle. So it's, you know, it's, it's somewhere in the last thousand years that we can set this. But it doesn't really matter. Right. But he's raised in physical isolation, raised actually in darkness. Raised is the wrong term. That's also social. He just sort of exists in it. He does mention a guardian, but this is just uh, Lovecraft or the narrator here being like logically he's like i would have died as a baby if someone didn't take care of me so there must have been something but he has no memory of any caretaker you know except noiseless rats bats and spiders he thinks it might may have been someone who, who who died when he was quite young and left him there um so what he has to what what does he have and he has to sort of raise himself and what does he have for companionship it's just books he's just uh so so this is maybe a, a nerd maybe if we want to interpret it that way this is just a kind of a basement dwelling nerd, perhaps. Um, but they don't usually read. My impression is they don't really read that much. Readers are a bit more socially connected, I think, than, than maybe some, so the, the classical kind of basement dwelling geek. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that lifestyle if you choose it, but I mean, I'm a podcaster. Who can, what can, what can I say? Um, so anyways, he gets his knowledge from books. Um, now, he, one thing he does, and this is kind of a Lovecraftian thing, is he dreams. He finds dreams as a means of escape. Quote, outside, across the putrid moat and under the dark mute trees, I would often lie and dream for hours about what I read in the books. And I would longly picture myself amid gay crowds in the sunny world beyond the endless forests. 
Once I tried to escape from the forest, but as I went farther from the castle, the shade grew denser and the air more brutal fear, and I ran frantically back, lest I lose my way in a labyrinth of nested silence. So through endless twilights I dreamed and waited. End quote. So this is very much the dreamers in the Dreamland stories. People who are lacking something in this world. They have some degree of social isolation, sadness, um, alienation. Maybe that's the word I'm hunting for, alienation. And through dreams they find... Uh, meaning they find uh, positions of power in some cases they find art and beauty you know all sorts of things that are lacking in this world well, well we've just talked about the quest of irona right where the quest there was beauty and he finds it in the dreamlands um, although I, I kind of question how much that's a dreamland story but he dreams within the story and he dreams of of a land where where beauty is so he spends his time dreaming and waiting and you know he there's one kind of tower in this castle that he wants to go to. This thinks, you know, it's like the, the West Wing or something, you know, the castle. It's, it's like the Black Tower that he's never been to, right? And he thinks that this might have some knowledge, and it's described. He wants to glimpse the sky and perish. He'd rather glimpse the sky and perish than live forever without beholding day. So that's another thing about his setting here. The setting is, it's not underground, but it's under, like, these trees, and it's, so he can never like even see the sky or, or the light, you know, the sun or the moon or the stars. And he certainly can't see the nearby community. Yes, the, the castle is completely hidden, right? It's, it's pretty much under, you, know, you can almost imagine it underground, right? Maybe, maybe it is a sepulcher almost. But he wants to get to this tower where he can, he'll be up above the tree line and be able to see all these things that he's wanted to see. And he wants to do that before he dies can't even reach light. I mean, that's just kind of how horrific this situation is. Um, so he actually literally has to climb the outside of this tower. And he finally gets up. He reaches this, like, like you know, he gets to the outside of it. He's able to break his way in eventually. So there's a little bit of a, a questing here, which is quite, there's actually a couple quests here. The first is to get on the tower, and the second then is to go into the community. But he finally gets his way up. It's, it's well described. It's, it's, it's kind of a nice little adventure he goes on trying to climb his way up um then he finally falls exhausted into the tower itself so he's very hopeful at this moment i dragged myself up from the floor lovecraft writes and fumbled for the windows that i might look for the first time upon the sky and the moon and stars of which i'd read but on every hand i was disappointed since all i found were vast shelves of marble bearing odious oblong boxes of disturbing size Born more reflected and wondered what hoary secrets might abide in this high apartment. So many eons cut off from the castle below. So he's initially frustrated, but he is able to eventually kind of break through. There's a, a stone portal with some weird like chiseling or whatever. He's able to push through it. And finally, this allows him to see the moon for the first time. And this is really wonderful because it deals with memory, forgetting, Maybe, that, maybe there's a lot about forgetting in this story, actually. Maybe that's the whole problem here. Maybe this is... I mean, Lovecraft, right? I've talked about this before. Lovecraft is always talking about we need to forget. We need to forget, right? But does he really mean that? I mean, this story is like the terror of, of, of forgetting everything, right? He's totally isolated from his own past uh, and the past of any... He lacks any social context at all. You know, this is who you are if you have no memory of your past, right? Um... But anyways, he, he uses the language of memory here, which I, I kind of like. Um, I'd never seen 
I, okay, the moon was a full radiant moon, which I had never before seen save in dreams and in vague visions I dared not call memories. So uh, this idea that you kind of can't differentiate your dreams and memories. This is something we saw in the quest of Ironon. Uh, you see it in other stories as well. Uh, it's, you know, people saying, oh, did, did I really see this? Was it a dream? The moon bog had that same trope as well. He's, he's actually using this a lot in the writing of this, this period. Um, so anyways, he goes up and he's able to look out and he sees, he's able to see a town. And the town elicits terror in him. Um, quote, the site itself was as simple as it was stupefying, stupefying, for it was merely this. Instead of a dizzying prospect of treetops seen from a lofty eminence, there stretched around me on a level through the grating, nothing less than a solid ground decked and diversified by marble slabs and columns and overshadowed by the ancient stone church whose ruined spire gleamed spectrally in the moonlight. So marble, or no, yeah, marble slabs, columns and a stone. Marble and stone, I'm just thinking of the way cities were described in the quest of Ironon, where the, the good city was described as marble and the kind of the industrial, utilitarian, practical industrial city was described as stone. Uh, here you have a little bit of both, I guess. So then he sets out on his second quest. The first quest was climbing the tower. The second quest is to then go into the, the town, uh, to journey to the town, to, to interact with society finally, to be one with the society that's been isolated from his whole existence. Um, now, there's something really interesting in this next paragraph. Um, at least I thought. I, I thought just but the but kind of the architecture of the castle. Um, quote: Over two hours must have passed before I reached what seemed to be my goal—a venerable ivy castle in a thickly wooded park, maddening familiar yet full of perplexing strangeness to me. I saw that the moat was filled in, and that some of the well-known towers were demolished, whilst new wings existed to confuse the beholder. And then he goes to describe a party going on in the castle. But, I, but what I read, though, I think is, is actually more interesting than the party. Because what you have there is an old like medieval castle. Right? It's got the moat. It's got towers. But some of the towers were broken down, but other new towers were built up. It's like, you know, we do this with cities all the time, right? We, we, we have the city as it was originally established, maybe in the 15th century or 16th century. You know, New York in the 16th century. But we tear it down and we build new buildings. But we keep some of the old. We don't tear down everything necessarily, right? Sometimes, like in China, you keep a few neighborhoods, like as a zoo almost, an architectural zoo. You know, like Beijing has just the area around the Forbidden City. We say, oh, we're going to keep the old buildings just there. Everything else is going to be torn down and rebuilt, right? It's this kind of, you know, the decline of the old doesn't totally abolish the old, but you, you tear down some of it and you rebuild others. You build on it something new. Instead of restoring it in the old way, you kind of just build build the new it's kind of like how modernity kind of treats architecture right it it keeps some as, as kind of essentially an architectural zoo um, and the rest is sort of just washed away and replaced with with something more modern right or sometimes fake old that'd be philip dick i mean philip dick would give you the fake old um lovecraft not thinking quite that way yet but I think very, very interesting. And, and that lets us kind of contextualize, I think, the outsider, our narrator, who's also been, is part of the left behind, right? He's obviously something that was left behind in that castle that wasn't rebuilt. It wasn't part of the urban rejuvenation project, obviously. It was just left out there in the woods. So anyways, back to the story. He sees the party in the castle, you know, and it's, it's 
you know, we can't really time this. It's, I, I get the impression it's kind of like a early modern kind of Venetian masquerade or something. Whatever. Doesn't matter. It's kind of like actually like the uh, the Mask of the Red Death, right? All right, where you got this party and then the the, the bad thing comes in, disrupting the party. Um, same kind of thing. This is a very Poesque story. Is that the right word? Poesque? Poe-like. So as soon as he walks in, everyone freaks out because he's a, a zombie monster. Um, and he's immediately alone again. So our poor guy has gone through these two little quests, climbed this tower, saw the outside world for the first time, faced his fears, his terror, set off into the world, tried to explore the neighboring community, goes into this party, and two seconds later, he's once again all alone. Alone in society. Now it's different, though. Now he's alone in society. He's a true outsider. He's like an outsider at a different level than he was previously. Uh, in the castle, he was alone, but no one knew about him. Now he's still alone, despite everyone knowing about him. It's almost worse, right? It's really worse. Um, and then he sees the monster that scared everyone else. He, he doesn't realize it's him at this point, right? He just sees it. And here's the description. Um, we don't get the best description of it. It's all kind of vague. He says, uh, I beheld in full frightful vividness the inconceivable, indescribable, and unmentionable monstrosity which had by its simple appearance chained a merry company to a herd of delirious fugitives. I can't even hint at what it was, for it was a compound of all that is unclean, uncanny, unwelcome, abnormal, and detestable. It was a ghoulish shade of decay, antique, and desolation, the putrid, dripping Edelon of unwholesome revelation, the awful bearing of what the merciful God should always hide. God knows it was not of this world or no longer of this world, yet to my horror I saw in its eaten away and bone-revealing outlines a leering, abhorrent travesty of a human shape and its moldy, disintegrating apparel and unspeakable quality that chilled me even more. Yeah, it's pretty much a, a corpse. So he stares at it for a while, then reaches out to touch the hand. Something moves him to do it. Um... You know, he's trying to fend it off, right? Because he, as he's reaching towards it, it's reaching towards him. So he tries to fend it off. But anyways, he, he touches the mirror, right? You don't know it's a mirror until the last line of the sentence, but it is a mirror. Um, now, at this point, he kind of calms, right? So he says, I did not shriek, but all the fiendish ghouls that ride the night wind shrieked for me. As in that second second, there crashed upon my mind a single and fleeting avalanche of soul annihilating memory. I knew in that second all that it had been. I remembered beyond that frightful castle and the trees and recognized the altered edifice in which I now stood. So memory, right, comes back. And, and obviously I've been saying how much Lovecraft doesn't want us to remember. But the, the problem with this story maybe is forgetting it didn't work out too well for this guy either. It was pretty horrible. His life was pretty horrible before. And now that he remembers everything, everything's revealed to him. He has that instant you know, memory of everything that happened. Maybe that he's a corpse, maybe that he died, whatever it is. It doesn't make things much better for him, I don't think. Um, but uh, he writes here, but in this cosmos, there's a balm as well as bitterness. And maybe that's the point, right? It's, it's a bit of both. And that balm is nephethine. Nephethine is apparently it's from the odyssey it's a drug that causes forgetfulness right 
So that's basically how the story ends, is with this hoping to find memory. Oh, there, there's a little bit more, though. He does kind of, he has a dream then, right? So, in a dream, I fled from that haunted, accursed pile and ran swiftly and silently to the moonlight. When I returned to the churchyard place of marble and went down the steps, so he returns home. I found the stone trap door immovable, but I was not sorry, for I had hated the antique castle and the trees. Now I ride with the mocking, friendly ghouls on the night wind. So he, he's kind of finding some liberation here, right? So he can't get back in to his, basically his tomb, right? So it's, the antique castle that he lived in was essentially his tomb. But he can't get back into it, and he finds some sort of liberation in this, kind of hanging out with the ghosts. Uh, I ride with the mocking and friendly ghouls in the night wind and play by day among the catacombs of Nefron Ka. It's like some kind of weird god. In the sealed and unknown valley of Hadoth by the Nile. So he's with the mummies now. I know that light is not for me, save that of the moon over the rock, rock tombs of Neb, nor any gaiety save the unnamed feasts of Nicrois beneath the great pyramids. Yet in my great wildness and freedom, I almost welcome the bitterness of alienages. Um, so although this drug calmed him, I always know that I'm an outsider. But he finds a little bit of community here, all right? He's not totally alone anymore. He, he's, he's riding with the mocking and friendly ghouls. It's not the worst thing. It's not the worst fate. So maybe he ends up as happiest as this little zombie can be. So anyways, what to say about this? Uh, it's, it's about loneliness. It's about isolation. And those are themes that are so universal to humanity. You can place it on, 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 you can interpret it in many different ways, I think. And the outsider, I mean, it all depends on your social context, right? Um, I guess the way I want to, I could go at this is, you know, there is this kind of anxiety I have, not really anxiety, but um, a feeling I have that Lovecraft on some level, despite what he writes in his letters, despite his surface interpretation of things, he kind of sides with the outsiders in his tales sometimes he sides with the you know these immigrant cultists because he finds in them some kind of like power and and freedom that maybe he doesn't have and and i do notice that this character finds a little bit of freedom there um, but you know he he sympathizes from time to time with them maybe not as much as he he should have and, and he often does as as jesse the the, the host of the SSF, SFF audio podcast says, you know, Lovecraft tends to punch down. He certainly does. Not in this story, though. I mean, this, this is certainly a, a victim in various ways. And, you you know, whatever you want to paint on him, paint on this as, as an interpretation, you know, these outsiders tend to be socially isolated in some way. And, and therefore, sympathizing with them is, is proper. It's, it, it's, it's right. And I think that's one reason the story is popular, I think, and and so useful, right? It's also a story you can kind of understand and talk about without having to kind of get into the Lovecraft lore at all and get into that stuff. And you don't have to know about the, you know, except for that one paragraph where it talks about the ghouls and Nephron Khan, Khan and all that. I mean, without that, it doesn't even matter in the story that much. But without that, you can kind of, you know, just read this as a standalone story without getting too much into his politics or his worldview. And I think that gives the story some, some, some legs, and I think a, this will long be re, uh, an often reprinted story of his. 
Now, the other thing, of course, is memory and forgetfulness. Uh, obviously a big part of it. So we have someone who doesn't remember his past. He finally remembers it when he kind of is able to glimpse himself. And then he immediately goes back to try and forget. But he comes, he's still forgetting, but he's forgetting from a position of, change, of being changed. He can't get back to his home. He can't kind of go back entirely to how things were. He can only, the drug can only for, let, allow him to forget so much. And so he, he's still an outsider, but he's an outsider kind of with a different perspective on his, his life. And, and even to a certain degree kind of builds a new community, I think. There's a little glimmer of happiness, I think, at the end of the story. Um, but anyways, I don't want to say too much more about the outsider. I don't, I don't feel comfortable talking about it. This is like the story, I think if you say anything definitive about it, you're in trouble. And you're going to be wrong. Or you just kind of miss the point. I think it's supposed to be sort of vague. Um, now the next story, much more clear. The next one I'm going to look at, much more clear allegory. The Outer Gods. The Outer Gods. Uh, another Dreamland story. Uh, very short, like The Outsider. A little bit shorter than The Outsider, but still um, five pages. Um, about the same length, though. I think The Outsider was like eight or seven or eight pages. It's set in the Dreamlands, but it's really an allegory. Uh, much more so an allegory than The Quest of Irinan. So it's a nice little quick read. Uh, we'll actually I already recorded that one, but if you're listening, you'll you'll hear about this one next. So uh, in the next episode, I'll be talking about that um, story. But if you have your own thoughts about the outsider, let me know what they are, please. Uh, whatever interpretation you want to give to the outsider, please please give me. Uh, send me a tweeter, Twitter. Send me a email. I'm all here alone in this building in this in China all alone so you know I, I, I need some contact with the outside world so please send me send me an email it'll make me very very happy uh, yeah but that's gonna be it for now see you next time with the outer gods thanks for listening <laughs>